HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. Hey, 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 I'm Jimmy Carboni from Beer Sessions Radio. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Greenhorns, this is Severin. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers, by young farmers. I'm coming to you today from Rainy, Maine, where we are preparing for the Maine Sail Freight Project. I've been on the phone all morning with mariners, young and old, learning about cargo shipping and freighters and merchant ships and whaling and crude oil and um, slave trade and cotton trade, and it's really, I love this, the, what it turns, the terms of trade on the ocean. Um, today, I'm talking to Gallen, who is on the other coast and part of an economy that's also met a lot of freighters going in and out of the West Coast, moving lumber, and, um, well, Gallen, tell us a little bit about your hometown there, and tell us a little bit about what you do there. Um, sure. Well, um, our, our whole coast is um, essentially a logging and fishing town that is trying to reinvent itself in the aftermath of the death of logging and fishing. Um, our local mill has been shut down for several years and is um, a massive uh, cleanup site. It's um, pretty heavily polluted, and so a, a lot of the coastline in Fort Bragg is actually gated off. Um, and it's uh, there's there's also a really burgeoning um, arts and tourism economy here. Um, the Mendocino Art Center uh, was initially founded by artists coming up from San Francisco to this coast, and there's a huge amount of film and um, art and jazz and culture here too. So we're kind of that um, in between mix of like very blue collar, also still really feeling the kind of after effects of. Um, uh, the 60s and the 70s and the back to the landers and also just a lot of really like you know salty old sheep ranchers and dairy dairy cow people um, so we're, we're kind of a, a mix of a lot of different things uh, I had a really interesting conversation uh, getting a ride from the Fort Bragg Grange to the Willis Grange from Hank who has been a Grange member and been cooking Grange pancake breakfast for um, 35 years, 
and he said it took him a while. The first time he was going to apply to be in the Grange, uh, they didn't take a they didn't take a liking to him because he was a railroad man, and there was still a prejudice within the Grange against railroad men because, of course, the Grange was very active in trying to break the monopoly of the railroads through state regulation. And um, Hank's only like eighty years old, but uh, it was really interesting to listen to his uh, stories and to hear of those existing, like the long-lasting echoes of those institutions that are so absent from the way that we interact with the landscape, but, of course, still very present in his life and memory. Um, Let's talk about beer world and the beer and this mission that I think we're both sharing, which is that every brewery, every local brewery adopts a young farmer. Can you tell us about your reentry onto the coast and your relationship with the brew the brewmasters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I grew up on the coast here and then left to go to school and um, ended up farming in Portland, Oregon, um, and came back to teach uh, a nonprofit farm-to-school program and pretty quickly actually met Mark and Loretta. Mark is the, the brewmaster at North Coast Brewing Company, and Loretta is the the executive chef at their tap room and restaurant that they run in town. And um, it kind of started as like a really small scale on some land that um, the nonprofit was working on growing produce for the restaurant and then starting to experiment with making um, sheet mulches and compost preparations and and using the the spent grain and hops and other waste products from the brewery. Um, And those projects kind of um, grew and grew and grew. And uh, it, it was actually helpful that I was on a school site because I had um, overhead lighting at night. So I could work on my, I could turn my compost piles at night um, because it was doing everything by hand. And it got up to the point where I was handling sometimes upwards of about 6,000 pounds of spent grain per week by hand um, with a pitchfork and wheelbarrows. And... Um, it, it kind of got to the point where um, we needed a bigger site, and um, a, a conflux of of a lot of different factors came together, um, allowing that to happen. But um, Mark at, at North Coast Brewing Company, um, you, you just you couldn't you couldn't ask for a more thoughtful, insightful, amazing. Um, Mentor. I mean, and he's he's not a farmer. He's an amazing gardener and has been a beekeeper for a long time. But he's a biologist and is interested in beer from a biology perspective. And so the two of us really connected on composting and carbon sequestration and um, aerobic ways of dealing with with you know a waste stream um, and turning it into something really positive. Um, it got to the point where he said to me, "Okay, like when you're ready to to go bigger." Um, come talk to me, and uh, that that time came, and uh, a retiring farmer on the coast um, approached me, and um, and said that he he had to sell his land, he had to move to where there was better medical treatment, and could we buy it? And um, it's this forty acre parcel right on the coast of beautiful agricultural land that had been certified organic but hadn't been sold. It had been in his family for over 100 years. And so it was completely funky with coastal regulations. It was in two different parcels, really couldn't be easily purchased. Um, 
and so I, I went to Mark and said, this, what do you think? And, um, and he said, let's do it. And so um, in, incredibly fortunately, you know, my parents were, were approaching retirement. Um, they were able to sell their house and, um, apply, and we applied for a farm service agency loan. Um, for one of the legal parcels on the farm, and then North Coast Brewing Company purchased uh, the second parcel. Um, and so we were able to, to buy the land collaboratively. And so really, you know, without my parents having uh, the down payment from their house, without me having the farming experience to qualify for the farm service agency loan, and without North Coast Brewing Company to be able to buy this, you know, small, non-conforming parcel... It was on the other side of a creek, <laughs> so had a, a separate IPN number. Um, I, we wouldn't have been able to do it, but um, in, we were. Just I had very, a feeling, Lady Gowan, that you are often an exceptional candidate for things. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about what it's like to qualify for an FSA loan and the process you have to go through of being refused? Uh, yeah, and how you did that. Um, I, I, Absolutely. Well, so first we um, we qualified uh, to be able to borrow um, to be able to borrow money, which um, took a, a series of applications, both from me and from my parents, um, a, a whole lot of information. Um, and actually, what what I did is by that point, I had been selling produce to local restaurants for about four years, and before that, I had been farming on a 150 acre farm in Portland, Oregon. And so I got letters from really everyone I had ever done business with, both um, talking about volume of produce and also what their dollar amount of purchasing was and what they would be willing to shift uh, to our farm if we were able to have land. And so I was able to kind of use that as a form of, of collateral um, because we had um, dedicated people who were ready to buy produce. Um, so after we, um, after we got basically approved to apply for the loan, um, you then have to kind of go down the list of FSA's um, lenders that they work with because they're, they're basically FSA-backed loans. Um, so it's called a, a guaranteed loan. So you're still going through a private bank, but then the loan is backed up by the FSA. And most of their approved banks only deal with large corporate agriculture. And so we just straight up did not qualify for most of them. A lot of them, the applications only had number of head of cattle, number of acres of corn, number of acres of soybeans, number of acres of wheat. There, there wasn't even any specialty crops in a lot of them. But we just went down the list. I applied to every single one. It was probably like um, just about 40 pages on average per application. And finally, at the bottom of the list, there was Community West Bank in uh, Northern California, and they were able to work with us. Um, they're fantastic, and I highly recommend them to anyone who's looking for an ag lender in this area. Um, and actually, so you're saying go to the bottom of the list and start there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's just because they had a W in the name. That's why they were at the bottom of the list. But um, in the middle of all of this, uh, the uh, government basically shut down. The, the government shutdown happened. Um, Boehner and his friends, uh, you know, um, kind of sh shutting the whole scene down, and that meant that our loan kind of disappeared. Uh, the USDA website disappeared. 
for several days. Um, actually, after we had been just just been approved, and um, that that was a that was an intense day. Um, Obama actually mentioned in a speech about the shutdown how it impacted farmers using operating loans and land loans, which I kind of felt validated by that. But um, because we were working with Community West Bank and we had developed a relationship with them, and because we had a solid application, they were able to extend us a bridge loan so that we didn't, you know, lose lose the land. Um, but in in doing that, the the bridge loan cost us. Um, a bunch of money, and we actually lost all of our startup capital. Um, so, it, well, it was, how much it did it, how much did that government shutdown cost you personally? Um, upfront, about forty five thousand um, dollars. Some of that oh, was oh. later um, returned. So, oh. um, a pretty, a pretty like that was that was all that we had basically. Um, but uh, and and actually. Um, the community here is so beyond amazing, and um, there was there was actually a time when and and no one knew this. You know, I wasn't talking about this. We weren't, you know, um, we weren't going around town talking about how the shutdown affected us. Mostly because we were just still in shock. But I came back to my truck one day and found an envelope on my seat with a little note saying that it was from a group of women homesteaders, and in like had like a packet of like fives and tens and one dollar bills that added up to about two thousand dollars and that was our first season that's what bought our seeds and our diesel and that's what got us started so and i actually still don't know who those people were (laughs) oh my god yeah so darlin and her fairy godmother co-op yeah, well, there is there is an incredibly strong history of women in agriculture on the coast here. There were, were several uh, women-run cooperative farms in the 70s, and a lot of those women are still here and um, are people that I, I call on all the time, you know. So, um, you know, like when we, when we say our farm is fortunate farm, like we're, we're not kidding. <laughs> like, but um, the, the backbone of that is uh, basi- basically uh, a lot of work and also as, as much um, community integration as possible. Um, we really, um, r- really try to just um, open up as, as much as we possibly can um, and as much as we can try to make, make this farm as... Um, as much of a good thing <laughs> to as many people as possible. But um, as, so as let's far talk as, a little bit about that future. Now you have you own Fortunate Farm. You're you're in you you have good fortune. You have good momentum. You're composting more than ever. Um, tell us a little bit about how your farm future is looking and how that future is situated within the future of the region as a whole. And um, maybe you can even talk a little bit about what you learned um, through your Eat Mendocino project and kind of what that lesson brings towards your vision of the future. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, well, what, um, one of the things that's really exciting uh, right now is that North Coast Brewing Company and, um, and, and I have started working on this um, aerated uh, 
sheet mulch project using the spent grain as a feedstock. Um, uh, they purchased a um, a windrow aerator from Frontier um, that I leased from them for a very low cost, and um, so basically we're processing large amounts of spent grain, um, and this uh, it's a just a small tractor drawn implement. It's not a giant scary machine. Um, it's basically like a big rototiller, but it blasts air. And we're using it to make this really beautiful finished dirt, basically. And what we found with that is that we can use it to um, combat invasive species. It's a really effective sheet mulch. We're using it for erosion control. And we're also using it to develop a form of no-till. Um, it's not compost. It's not high nitrogen. It's not volatile. It's very, it's dirt, basically. Um, and so what we're doing is kind of coming into cropland and making these, these windrows and then um, harvesting them or partially harvesting them and then planting. And I'm very excited about that. Um, you know, these implements are about $20,000 brand new, which is expensive, but could be purchased collaboratively. And I would love to see more young farmers using technology like that. Um, I, to me, that's one of the things that I'm the most excited about. I've, I don't think I'll ever static compost again. It's, it's phenomenal and so much less time and effort and so much less nutrient runoff or really anything damaging happening. So that is probably the thing that I'm most excited about um, as far as the project that we're working on right now. Um, we're also looking into biochar and some other, um, some other projects that way. Um, as far as, you know, the future of this region, I would really love to just do everything in my power to get more farmers established and going here and to be supportive to the ones that are here. You know, this, this is definitely, um, this area has a history of being a really rich agricultural region that actually did a lot of exporting to San Francisco um, only about, you know, 50, 80 years ago. Um, and I would love to see, maybe not necessarily all that exporting, but that kind of self-sufficiency and independence. And my, my partner in the Eat Mendocino Project, Sarah Bodnar, is amazing. And she's working on all kinds of things right now, like a, a small farm grant project called Good Farm Fund. She's also on a bunch of the food policy councils and working for uh, raising money for our EBT match program, which is basically where you take food stamps to the farmer's market. There is money donated by businesses and dinners and events where the farmers get paid and the chefs get paid, and then the proceeds go into uh, a match program that just basically acknowledges the fact that local food is more expensive, and if you're on a low income, it's hard to go to the farmer's market. So just that project, just for the last couple of years, we've seen massive booms in EBT use and put all this money directly into the farmer's market. So that's amazing. But the biggest thing about Eat Mendocino which is a project that Sarah and I did in 2013, um, where for a year we only ate food that came from Mendocino County, which included everything, everything we ate, everything we drank. We made our own salt. <laughs> we didn't use any spices. We gave up coffee. We gave up everything that didn't come from this county. Um, and really what that taught us is where our areas of abundance are and where our scarcity is and what we have to do to wrap it together. It really taught me what I need to grow, um, it, and it taught me who I needed to go make friends with, um, and really connected me to this place in a way that I don't think I ever could have been 
if I wasn't so tangibly connected to it for my survival. And that's, that was really the point was, you know, what if we were really serious about local food and we would die without it? And so we created that situation. Um, and out of it came um, just really unbelievable abundance and so many friends, you know. Um, you know, there's so many farmers that I, I had kind of known about, you know, or I knew were out there, but it's a big county. And having, you know, having this, this commitment to only eat local food really forced me to get off my farm and go to their farms and go meet them. And if, if for nothing else, it was worth it for that. So, and I would love um, to see more of that as an ethos. Yeah, you know, it's very and interesting. I, um, I'm engaged right now in this project of logistics, you know, food logistics as performance art in the project, this, the main self right project. And uh, similarly exploring these themes of, you know, who's out there, where's the pedestrian dock, where's the dock, you know, how many... How many miles is it by bicycle or by walk to get from the public market to the wharf? Who owns the wharf? How deep is the water? Right. Like all this important information that so much a part of the material culture of our lives and is invisible to us um, as consumers and hidden behind capitalism in embedded in you know supply and demand, but which is all you know amounts to many variables. Uh, and is totally approachable through, you know, applied human cleverness. And I am realizing that the engagement in these, like, practical relationships and the trust building and discussions across sector and, under, and operating and trying to harmonize between those different sectors' goals and, like, all along the value chain trying to have, you know, good, good terms of trade on both sides of the deal – are, those are all really important skills and really important skills in negotiating um, a different shape to our future. And and in mm-hmm. having all those conversations and in, like, exploring that framework um, through this project, what I'm kind of realizing is how, how contradictory that way of operating is to a kind of, like, very accepted idea of let's just, you know, push, go, like, push down on the gas as fast as we can in this, like, techno, techno, technologi- technologization direction. Um, and then maybe there'll be an apocalypse or maybe they won't and we'll be fine because technology will save us. And mm-hmm. I, um, in trying to, you know, envision and enact an alternative view of what the future might be and, you know, what a more graceful way of dealing with high energy costs and more regionalized food economy like might look like, you know, it really rubs up against um, people's perception of what's possible. And I think that their perception of what's possible is um, lower than it might be if they were engaged and understanding like the mechanics more. So that's a long-winded way of right. saying I, I'm not surprised that by constraining yourself to what was within the county that you started feeling like it was possible for the county to feed more than just you and your art project. Um, do you want to talk about what <laughs> yeah. you think? Um, do you want to no, talk about I'm, what I you mean, think I've, Mendocino I've, I've can do? I've honestly always, 
Yeah, no, I've, I've always seen that. You know, I think that we have the capacity here to feed ourselves, absolutely. You know, we have the capacity to feed ourselves independently. And, um, you know, I've, I've been saying that for a long time, but I, like, I really believe it now more than ever. And I know we're in California, and California is a very scary place to be right now. Um, you know, California is getting plowed and planted now the way the Midwest is getting plowed and planted 100 years ago. And there's a reason why a lot of crops that are coming from California's central valleys are supplying in the high 90th percentile of those fresh vegetables for the country. It's not because California is so special. A lot of California is not that great of an agricultural area. It's just because it's the last agricultural land that we're plowing. Like, we've ran out of the rest of it. And we're, like, hitting ocean next, you know? Um, Like, this is where all the sodbusters ended up. Like, my family came from Oklahoma during the Dust Bowl to California as migrant farm workers. You know, this, that's, that's a real history. And like now as the, the grandchildren of those people in this very delicate ecosystem where we have this like brittle environment with brutally dry, hot summers and wet winters and young glacial soil, you know, it, it's up to us to figure out how to live here and not kill it. And it's, it's a huge... It's a huge responsibility, and it's a huge opportunity. And I I honestly, like, I look around, and I I think we can really do it. You know, there are farmers inland uh, just about an hour from me, like Doug Mosel with the Mendocino Grain Project, who's experimenting with wheat strains from Iraq in the Middle East that he's dry farming in Ukiah, which is brutally hot and dry. Um, You know, there are people doing all kinds of amazing things. This is the home of Ecology Action, which is a nonprofit that studies um, entirely hand-powered farming on a micro scale to feed families. Um, and I, I really am beginning, it's, it's early days, but I'm, I'm beginning to feel like, like I have something to contribute to this conversation, <laughs> you know, by, by working with um, this waste material to sequester carbon and, and really increase soil's ability to absorb water um, and by stopping tilling. You know, um, so I mean, I feel really hopeful. Which I mean, it's it's kind of it's and it's hard to talk about feeling hopeful in California right now. It's not very popular. <laughs> well, I mean, making carbon for the soil out of beer seems like a pretty unconve- I mean, a uh, un uncon what's it called? Controversial, not very controversial. It seems like a pretty win win win. Are oh you, yeah, are I you mean, getting? Yeah, go for it. Um, I, I have a, a two-year side-by-side plot trial right now. Um, that is just absolutely stunning. Like, I wish this was a format where I could show pictures. Um, we have uh, plots, same seed stock, planted same day, same amount of water, same base soil. And plants that were planted in the beer mulch are, like, three and four feet high, beautiful refractometer tests look gorgeous. Um, I'm harvesting there. And my other two test plots of a control and a cover crop plot, we've got as as much as, like, 75% less growth, and the soil's drying out between waterings, um, and we've got four-foot-high weeds. It's it's amazing. 
it's fabulous. And it's not really that groundbreaking to say, oh, organic matter improves soil quality. Like, yeah, we know that, but um, not many people have been doing this with spent grain specifically. And there's a history of spent grain being used for kind of nefarious purposes in, in agriculture, you know, as a feed for cattle who really shouldn't be eating grain at all, let alone like high acid fermented grain. Um, but as a feedstock for an aerobic uh, processing system, there's nothing like it. It's so high-protein. It's so biologically active. And barley is a cover crop. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's, it's something that, um, to me, is, is a perfect material. You know, barley is a cover crop that is not economically even worth it to spray. And it's already been used to make amazing beer, which we also get to drink, and then it gets to go do this in the soil and grow fabulous produce, and that produce gets to go to Loretta, who will turn it into great food and serve it to people in the tap room. Like, there's nothing better than that. I am so happy. Like, every day I get to do this. It's, 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 pretty, it's pretty great. Gowan, you're such a rock star. I am so thankful that you made the time to do this interview, and I want to make sure you have a chance to announce if there's any other upcoming events or if you need anything um, to call it out, I'm going to make a tiny little pitch for everyone who's in the East Coast to think about uh, attending one of the six uh, heirloom fruit workshops that are taking place in Vermont and New York um, at the Greenhorns headquarters, care of Eliza Greenman. Go to Greenhorns events to read all about them. Um, Also, our friend Max Godfrey is on tour in Maine and Massachusetts. Um, with his new band, the New Jelly Rollers, doing work songs and a bunch of old, now let's see, what do you call it, old-time, old-time music? No, that's not really true. It's not really old-time. It's the New Jelly Rollers. I'm not sure what you call it. And then, of course, Maine Self-Rate, we have an expanding number of events and happenings along the Maine coast and also inland in Hollowell, um, up the Kennebec River. Uh, we have a volunteer form on the website if you want to get involved in being um, somebody who's carrying cargo and organizing events and researching old sailboats and putting together exhibits. Um, The team is growing, and it's a really fun team. And, oh, also Neil Young. Neil Young is on tour with his new band, which is a band made up of Willie Nelson's sons. So it's an intergenerational band dedicated to singing songs about Monsanto. Uh, And it's pretty exciting. Greenhorns has been offered a bunch of tickets to give away to young farmers. Um, If you're a young farmer and you want to go see Neil Young for free and you want to talk at a table about the alternative to conventional agriculture, please get in touch with us, office at thegreenhorn.net, and write Neil Young is the subject line. And that's all I'm time I'm going to take. Gowan, over to you. You got any last words, needs? Yeah. You know, um, what I would just say um, to, to other young farmers out there is go find your local craft brewery and just go knock on their door and introduce yourself. That's all I did. And expect it to take a couple years of backbreaking labor to build a relationship. Um, but... It's absolutely worth it. And if you don't have a local craft brewery, go find your local grocery store or a local restaurant or a co-op or whatever's there and just make those relationships the best that you can. And otherwise, I would just say, like, hang in there 
everything is wonderful and perfect, um, even when it's really spectacularly not. And, um, you know, with all, all is well. And if you happen to be four hours north of San Francisco, we are having an open farm day and a barn party this Saturday the 6th. Um, and even if you're not, um, come find us on Facebook. We're Fortunate Farm, and we love you very much. <laughs> Thank you, Gowan. I think Gowan's been a long uh, collaborator with the Mendocino Farmers Guild, and if you're in California and you're a young farmer or considering to become a young farmer, please do go check out the awesome network of the Farmers Guild. Um, Evan Wig and others are making that happen in a really great way. Thank you all. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.